Hello everyone, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you at, well, I would usually say as usual, but I won't do this time after our long Christmas break that we just had, but uh, almost as usual, from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And of course the reason why The Mind Reduced has been off air for somewhat longer than I would have liked is due, of course, to my persistent voice problem, which seems to be getting better. And uh, I don't know if that's uh, definite, but the trajectory certainly seems to be upward and it's uh, good to be able to be behind the microphone again and start speaking. And uh, let me just say thanks to the very many of you who have sent messages of concern and offered to pray for me. I very much appreciate that. So thanks to all of you who've done that. Um, so now, today, to kick off 2015 here at Mind Renewed a little bit later than anticipated, I'm delighted to welcome back to the programme our friend Anthony Rutuno, who joined us last year to talk about changing the discourse, as we called that conversation. And I'll just say quickly, for those who may not have caught that previous conversation, Anthony is a teacher, blogger and freethinker, originally from the UK, but who now lives and works in Spain, in Madrid. So, Anthony, welcome again. It's good to have you on to kick off 2015. Hi, Julian. How are you? Happy New Year. And Happy New Year to you. As I say, I'm okay. It's not completely gone yet, but I'm hoping this medication is uh, is working. Medication always sounds bad, doesn't yeah. it? But, uh, <laughs> well, I, I did enjoy your uh, husky introduction to the Norman Dodd interview, I must say. Oh, well, thank you very much. And it took me a while to, to remember, actually, you had voice problems. I suddenly thought, is he using a new approach? It sounded quite mysterious, and uh, it worked, actually, strangely enough. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. You should have done more like did... that. <laughs> <laughs> I might do, but then, of course, it wouldn't be genuine next time. Right. Or maybe it would be. I mean, maybe the problem's going to come back with a vengeance, but I do hope not. Yeah, it's never the same if you contrive it, is it? No, absolutely. It's better by accident. Yeah. Okay. Now, of course, um, a bit like last time, I think the idea that we've agreed is that we're going to be having more of a conversation, aren't we, than an yep. interview. And I'm, I'm hoping that that's going to be slightly lighter in weight than some of the interviews we have here on The Mind Renewed. Yeah. Um, all right, it's not going to be trivial, I hope, but because of the subject matter, I think it's going to be a recipe of, let's say, seriousness seasoned with a little mirth, would you say? Oh, yeah, yeah. Comedy and profundity in uh, equal measure. That's it. Right. So we've decided to call it, was it truth comedy? Truth comedy, yes. Yeah, let's call, yes. It, so let's call it that. And I've just jotted down a kind of definition of that to sort of guide us and I'm saying that that's the the ways in which the art of comedy can help to alert people to the truth of what's going on in our world that is to sort of help break through the propaganda matrix that we find ourselves in but also um, the ways in which comedy as again the art of comedy can reveal and help to free us from ways of thinking that can sometimes inhibit critical thought in various ways mm. so a massive subject potentially massive and that we can't do justice to it but uh, we've decided haven't we to approach this by way of examples mm -hmm. and we're going to start with the bbc situation comedy from the 1980s which was first of all yes minister and then became yes prime minister and this is the subject of your latest blog post which i'm going to say to everybody it's well worth reading actually it's a, it's a massive blog post i must have taken you ages to do <laughs> um I don't know whether everybody knows this series. I mean, people in the UK will know it really, really well, but I don't know, yeah. you know, to the rest of the world, to what extent it's sure. known. So could you give us a kind of introduction to it and then tell us why you think this is such a significant series? Yeah, well, it was, um, as you said, it's a BBC series that came out, as you said, in the 1980s. Essentially, it's the battle between a politician who's, uh, first of all, a government minister, which I think in America would be a senator, probably, or a congressman, something like that. And then he becomes prime minister. It's It's basically... On one hand, you've got you've got the minister whose name is Jim Hacker, and I'll come back to that name. So try and remember that one, Jim Hacker. 
he's basically uh, the minister for a particular department of the government, and his nemesis is uh, a top civil servant who's uh, Sir Humphrey Appleby. And the civil service is uh, basically a permanent bureaucracy, and their official duty is to implement government decisions. So on the surface, the minister comes up with a policy, and then the civil service implement that policy, you know, the administration, etc. So they're supposedly doing what he wants, but of course the truth is nothing like that, because the civil service, it's called the safest job in England, because it's a, a job where a person is groomed through the service, and it's very difficult to lose that job as long as you uh, don't upset the status quo too much. So essentially the, the civil servant, Sir Humphrey, is blocking Hacker at every turn. And Hacker's a kind of, he starts out as an idealist, sort of a genuinely wanting to be a reformer. In fact, he's a former editor of a magazine called Reform, which we don't really know much about, but we presume that it's quite progressive. So essentially the main three characters that, that you need to know about is Jim Hacker, who's the minister, Sir Humphrey Appleby, who's a top civil servant, and then you've got a guy called Bernard Woolley, who's stuck in the middle because he's Jim Hacker's private secretary. So he answers to him technically, but he's also in the civil service and a lot of his career depends on Sir Humphrey. So, I mean, it's a great premise. It's a, it's a brilliant sort of uh, triangle to begin with. Uh, the, reason, the reason I think it's so good, and I mean, having rewatched it again, I mean, I just, I'm absolutely blown away by how good it was. And in fact, I call my blog post the miracle of Yes Minister, and that's for two reasons. One of them, I just thought it was so good because it's it's comedy with amazing scripts and amazing performances, and all it is is basically middle-aged men talking about politics. There's no <laughs> sex in it. Oh, yeah. The only the only action is uh, Sir Humphrey, the civil servant, rushing into a room to sort of stop Jim Hacker going on TV and making a huge gaffe. You know, that's the only action in, in it. So oh, there's another middle-aged man, isn't there? There's Sir Arnold Robinson. Um, who is, yeah. is he the is cabinet secretary? Is that right? Yeah, just briefly, the, the cabinet secretary is basically the civil servant to the prime minister. He does the same duty to the prime minister, and without making it too complicated, when Hacker becomes the prime minister, Sir Humphrey becomes the cabinet secretary. So essentially, the dynamic doesn't change, but Sir Arnold is an even more sort of. Uh, jaded and cynical civil servant who advises the Humphrey and I mean they're absolute masters at, at stopping progress you know and they continually say it they don't hide it they say um, yes ministers are it's a problem politicians they've started doing things and at one point they say uh, I, there's actually a politician with two ideas which is highly dangerous you know one idea is fine but two ideas yeah I mean the, the conversations that they have with each other you know they're mm. priceless aren't they those conversations they, yeah. they're so revealing of a certain kind of attitude and uh, there was one conversation they had this is in the, the Christmas yeah. episode which is the transition between uh, yes minister and yes prime minister where hacker is uh, tipped to become prime minister and they're actually discussing amongst themselves what kind of person would fit the bill yeah. of prime minister and uh, it's a fantastic sort of Gilbertian kind of conversation they have where the dialogue is actually distributed between the two of them. So they say one says one word and the other says the other word. It's incredible. And I've got it written down here and they're discussing this, uh, what candidate they want. And um, a compromised candidate, malleable, flexible, likable, no firm opinions, no big ideas, not intellectually committed, without the strength of purpose to change anything, someone you know can be manipulated, professionally guided, and leave the business of government in the hands of experts. And then there's a silence, and then they both laugh, because they're both thinking of Jim Hacker. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful moment full of truths there. 
Yeah, and I mean, uh, I think it would be a bit too much to go into all the other stuff that happens. But basically, the front runners for the for the prime minister who's suddenly retired are the chancellor and the foreign secretary, which is two of the top positions. But the problem with those two, according to the civil servants, is that they're both progressives and with ideas. <laughs> so again, it's very profound, as you said, because. They want someone who's controllable, and the way that they get the two front runners out the way is by opening their MI5 files. <laughs> Absolutely, I thought that was really priceless. Have you had a chance to glance at their MI5 files? No. Oh, you should always send for a cabinet minister's MI5 Absolutely. files if you enjoy a good laugh. And I immediately thought of uh, what Annie Machon said uh, about uh, the, the situation where, you know, I think she was talking about Tony Blair or something. The particular thing that I heard, and she, she was saying, "Oh yeah, of course, there's an MI5 file on all these people." So. You you know, do you don't know what to what extent they're blackmailed in all kinds of ways, to what extent they're controlled through this mechanism. And there it was back in the nineteen eighties, being told to everybody, you know, through through this comedy. Exactly. It was remarkable really. Yeah, and it makes you wonder, I mean, when these people get to top positions, you know, what's made available to them, you know? Mm-hmm. Presumably when you're in a position of power, you know, the the world's your oyster, you can have any indulgence you want and then immediately they've got something on you. I think I'm pretty sure that's how it works, frankly. I mean, it's similar, of course, in in the States. I mean, Russ Tice has has often said things like this, hasn't he, where, you know, the intelligence agencies over there have got all kinds of info on all kinds of politicians and, you know, they're being leveraged in all kinds of ways all the time. You just... Every man has a weakness, mm. you know. And the information is known more than it ever has been because everybody's snooped on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Just for your American listeners, MI5 is the equivalent of the FBI and MI6 would be the CIA, so MI5 is the internal... The National Intelligence Service. Yeah, do you want me to go through uh, some of the themes? I'll try and make it brief because we've got so much else to talk about. Do, do, yeah, sure. The bottom line is that government is cutthroat and cynical and career-driven. I don't doubt that at a local level, people who get into politics, there are true idealists who who just want to help and who are not well-paid and do work hard and everything. But at a certain point, I think people have got to accept that someone who gets a certain way through the system knows what's going on, you know, and... Um, well, it's true of Hacker, isn't it? Because, as yeah. you said, he started off as an idealist, and you actually see yeah. him in the programme acting like he wants to be an idealist most of the time. Yes. And yet there's a... Certainly in that... I keep coming back to that particular episode because I think it was so brilliant, that transitional mm. one between the two series, where it's so obvious there that he becomes a little civil servant. He becomes an Appleby. Mm because he's extorted into the situation because of these MI5 files and having to get these other candidates out of the way. He's extorted into the situation where he has to be like Appleby and uh, he has no choice. It's like a chess game and he's now a pawn and he he knows it, but he he actually acts in the same kind of way. And I thought it was quite revealing, actually. So here is an idealist who has the idealism knocked out of him and there's nothing he can do about it. Yes. Yeah, well, the writers described him as a mouse who learns how to be a rat, right. which I thought was yeah. brilliant. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, you're right. I mean, this this show just perfectly shows the trajectory of, a, of someone's career. You know, he starts off pretty naive, pretty idealistic, and I think with a with a genuine conscience. Mm-hmm. And I think he manages to keep that conscience through the series. Yes. But you just realise through necessity he has to toughen up and he has to become uh, slightly Machiavellian, as which is what you're saying, really, isn't it? Yes, that's right. He becomes part of the machine and nothing you can do about it yeah mm. so i think um people like sir humphrey and sir arnold you know they're quite dark people frankly and uh you know part of that is probably just conditioning but um the other point 
of many points. All the scenes were shot in uh, sort of secret rooms. You never actually see the Houses of Parliament and you never really see the public either. I mean, occasionally you see them. And the point was that that's where the decisions are taken. So really what, what happens in uh, Parliament, you know, particularly Prime Minister's questions and when you make speeches to the public, everything has already been worked out in advance. And another brilliant quote uh, Sir Humphrey says about Prime Ministers. Prime Ministers are like actors. They just have to look plausible, stay sober and say the lines they're given. <laughs> Which is brilliant. And uh, another scene, uh, uh, Jim Hacker goes to a local farm and... Um, Again, it's all for publicity, and he's uh, he's filmed arriving at the local farm, and he's got he's carrying a rabbit or something while they're interviewing him, and he starts giving a speech, and he's giving a very sort of cliched speech, and then he starts mentioning architects, and then he suddenly realises that he's got the wrong speech, and it's a speech he gave to the architectural society the previous day, but of course the big laugh comes when he gets the right speech; it's exactly the same. The words <laughs> change. <laughs> doesn't really matter that much. Yeah, and, and again, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's just a perfect example. It's funny and completely profound at the same time because mm. clearly, you know, I mean, you know, I was listening to, I listened to David Cameron for about 20 seconds the other day before I, you know, was reaching for the sick bag, just going on about, oh, this is freedom and democracy and uh, this is... A, and you thought, this is this is Jim Hacker. <laughs> it's Jim Hacker, yeah, with a speech probably written by uh, Sir Humphrey, yeah. Um <laughs> I want to just come back to this business about decisions being made in camera, really, and all the outward expressions to the public, and this is all just show, Mm -hmm. really, (laughs) on that level. There was a fantastic quote by Sir Humphrey Appleby, of course, he was talking about British democracy, and he described it as a civilised, aristocratic government machine tempered by occasional general elections. And I just thought, in just one sentence there, that says an awful lot, doesn't it? That uh, elections really are just throwing a little bit of the illusion of freedom to the the small people while the real decisions are made in these oak-lined rooms. And uh, I was reminded when I heard that of the thing that Noam Chomsky often makes reference to the that Trilateral Commission report in 1975 called The Crisis of Democracy yeah. on the governability of democracies, in which the problem there, the crisis of democracy, seems to be that, well, there's too much democracy. <laughs> People are too engaged politically, and yeah. so... You know, from an elite perspective, yeah. it's difficult to govern people. There's just too much democracy, an excess of democracy, as they call it. And uh, I thought, yeah, this is the same kind of attitude. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's another really good podcast by uh, Stefan Molyneux, who's a Canadian philosopher. And I mean, I won't talk about it now, but perhaps we could put a link to that. And it's called The Truth About Voting. And it's so worth reading. For anyone who's interested, I mean, he really nails it. But um, shall I move on? Um, bureaucracy, first yeah. of all. Hacker gets absolutely swamped in bureaucracy the quote he says there's either so little information that you don't know the facts or so much that you can't find them and he calls it catch 22 and then Sir Humphrey calls it uh, catch 22 subparagraph a which I thought was fantastic (laughs) one of the best lines you know and and the DAA there's also sort of nods to Orwell as well I mean Orwell's not mentioned in the show but it's very Orwellian well the DAA itself is it with Department of Administrative Affairs exactly it's a whole department (laughs) set up to administrate administrators and and Sir Humphrey says it takes time to do things now it's more expensive to do them cheaply and it's more democratic to do them in secret I think that just sums it up really 
But, uh, Was it lost? Lost files are under consideration. Is that right? Oh no, it's um, oh. under consideration means we've lost the file, and under active consideration means we're trying right, to find right. it. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, in some sense, bureaucracy is actually a tool of the system, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, certainly, you see that with Hacker, where he's given all these papers that he has to deal with, and that actually prevents him from doing anything important. And that's quite consciously done, isn't it? Yeah, and, and in that City Farm episode, actually, so Humphrey gets him to sign something just as he's leaving for a meeting, and Hacker says, do I have to do it now? And he says, well, you did, uh, promise, Minister. And he signs it, and it turns out that he's, he's agreed to let um, some developers build some uh, apartment blocks right next to the farm. <laughs> And obviously he wasn't aware of it. He just signed it to get Sir Humphrey off his back because another thing Sir Humphrey does is just as Hacker wants to leave, Sir Humphrey will just bamboozle him with words, uh, what I call the verbal bureaucracy, which is just it's maddening him with so many words that he doesn't understand because Sir Humphrey's sort of very verbally dexterous that uh, he just, in the end, he yes. just signs because he's just beaten into submission. So <laughs> That's another interesting thing, that uh, Appleby, Sir Humphrey, comes over as being this sort of super intellectual. But actually, mm. I'm not convinced that he is any brighter than Hacker. It's a, he, he has right. this background, doesn't he? You know, he's been to Eton and Oxford and sort of therefore has this confidence that he's secure in the system and he's been brought up to believe that he's superior. Whereas Hacker, mm. you know, went to the LSE and studied economics or whatever. So he might be much more yeah. mathematically literate than, than, than Appleby. But that doesn't matter because Hacker doesn't have that same sort of status and that class security that the other guy has. And, and, I, and I think that that's played on a lot, isn't it? So that Hacker yeah. feels inferior, even though he actually probably isn't intellectually. Yeah. And I mean, what you're saying is it comes down to appearance, you know. And our society is basically 80, 90% about appearance. Again, you know, people don't look beyond what they see in front of them, basically. There's a heck of a lot of bluff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is, yeah. Yeah, and uh, the other thing was uh, about the media, because there's a lot of scenes as well where they meet the media, and it's clear that there's collusion between not only the two parties, but them and the media as well. And uh, a famous famous quote is where Jim Hacker's talking about uh, the newspapers, because for overseas listeners, in, in England we have a lot of newspapers and uh, they're very ideologically driven. Hacker says, uh, the Daily Mirror is read by people who think they run the country, the Guardian is read by people who think they ought to run the country, the Times is read by people who actually do run the country, the Daily Mail is read by the wives of the people that run the country and the Financial Times is read by people who own the country. <laughs> so really the point there is that we're just being given this deliberate sort of um, division really by by the newspapers because if you read uh, for example the guardian which is traditionally left-wing and the times or the telegraph which is nicknamed the tory graph which is very conservative you're, you're going to get two very different uh, spins on, on the same facts and the same information um i think i'll leave it there shall i because uh, i could go on for another hour but uh, yeah, there's one thing, I think, before the interview, we were saying about how remarkable it is that this was 30 years ago, and the warning was there, as it were. You know, this was actually being brought out for people to understand, and people yeah. did, I mean, I remember people commenting about it and saying, oh, this is yeah. so true, we can see so much the reality of, of life in this, but it didn't lead anywhere. <laughs> it just stayed as entertainment. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we were saying, weren't we, it's this thing of... Um holding two opposing opinions at the same time, basically. Um, we mentioned cognitive dissonance last time. It's a sort of form of that, where you can say, 
oh yeah that's true but then like another part of your mind perhaps or another part of your brain filters out the idea of actually being outraged about yeah. it and so the, ne- the next general so, election comes around and people go out and vote and think it actually really does matter even though they've been watching this program and saying oh it's so true that these exactly. things <laughs> they have, yeah, it's, it's they curious. have instinct yeah and uh, comedy does bring out that instinct I think when you laugh a lot of the time you're laughing because something is true you're not only laughing because the joke is funny um, there was one other thing, tiny thing. Nigel Hawthorne, who played Sir Humphrey, was a fantastic actor and he won lots Brilliant. of awards. Yeah. But what's very interesting is that in the very rare moments when Sir Humphrey Appleby makes a mistake, Nigel Hawthorne does this incredible face where Sir Humphrey suddenly regresses to looking like a child. That's very true. Yes. And what I thought was very interesting <laughs> is the idea of standing up to fear. If you think of it, it's sort of a cliched, sort of scary boss in the office. You know, I used to have one of those scary bosses. You know, and I used to go to work terribly intimidated. I worked in an office a good few years ago. And I remember I read something or I watched something. And they were saying, uh, you know, behind every scary boss is basically a sort of inadequacy or there's some need to exert power on other people. And if you stand up to them, you, you'll be amazed how quickly they crumble. And I tried it and it sort of turned out to be true. You know, it's, it's, it's the bully thing, isn't it, really? You stand up to the bully and you'll be amazed how quickly they crumble. And a lot of people get their power from the power you give them. And that's true of governments, that's true of bosses, that's true of, uh, you know, whoever. And, yeah, there's the old uh, the scene from A Bug's Life. The grasshoppers, they go every year to steal the ant's food. And one of the grasshoppers says, well, we've actually got enough food. Why do we need to uh, steal from the ants? And he says, it's, it's not that we need the food, it's that we realise if, if we don't steal their food, they might realise that they outnumber us, you know, 200,000 to one. They might realise their power. You know, that, that's quite a sort of theme in the alternative movement, is realise your power, you know. We've got the 99%, which, in my opinion, is more like the 99.9% against, you know, the 0.1%, which is really the legacy of the Occupy movement. You know, if they did nothing else, they'd put the idea of the, the super-rich and everyone else rather than these left and right, you know, sort of contrived uh, divisions. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, so we're going to move on to being there, which was one of the things that I decided to talk about. And again, I'm not sure whether this is hugely well known. So what I'm going to do is just to give a brief introduction to it. So this is a film from the 1970s, 1979, starred Peter Sellers. And I consider it to be a kind of allegory, a cinematic allegory for the way that politicians are essentially puppets in the hands of power, controlling corporate power and products of the media. Mm -hmm. So it was written by a Polish-American novelist called Jerzy Kozinski, wrote a book by the same title, 1971. Now, according to the BBC dramatisation of Peter Sellers' life, Peter Sellers was absolutely desperate to do this film and play the the main protagonist, Chauncey Gardner, and uh, it turned out to be the last film that Peter Sellers did that was released in his lifetime. So Peter Sellers plays the part of this man called Chance, who I guess is sort of 50-ish, something like that. He's simple-minded. He lives in a really quite well-appointed old house in Washington, D.C. He lives with this elderly man. We don't really know why he's living there. You can speculate that perhaps he was an orphan and was taken in perhaps by the elderly man's wife or something like that, or perhaps he's a, you know, a, a child of a relative. We're just not told. Anyway, he's there. You know, being there, he's just there. <laughs> and um, he spent his whole life looking after this garden of the house. And it's a walled garden, so he couldn't see the outside world. And watching TV. And he seems to get all his information 
about the world just yeah. through watching TV. And the old man has put all these TVs in virtually every room in the house. Anyway, the old man dies, and because this chance character has no nous, as we say in this this area of the northwest of England, he's persuaded by lawyers to make no claim to the estate, and he's told that he has to leave. So he ventures out, you see, into yeah. the world for the first time. And um, I found it really weird experience watching this for the first time because you start watching it and you think that it's a really sad movie. You know, this guy does nothing. He's mm. he's just lying. He's lying in bed and he's just watching TV in a nameless way and he's flicking from channel to channel. And you think the whole film is going to be sort of um, a study in depression and, lo- and loneliness or something like that. And uh, it's only gradually as you keep watching that you step by step realize that this is a comedy, a kind of comedy in slow motion. I think that's a remarkable achievement, actually. Um, Anyway, he's out and about in the world, and he accidentally is nudged by the limousine that belongs to the wife of Benjamin Rand, a super rich businessman. Of course, that connotes the Rand Corporation there. So ben, Benjamin, Benjamin Rand, Rand that's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and um, Eve is his wife, played by Shirley MacLaine. So she was in the limousine, you see, and uh, she's concerned for Chance because he's been injured very slightly on the knee or something. And uh, so she's concerned that perhaps he might sue and bring embarrassment to the, the Rand family name or something. And uh, anyway, so she takes him to her home to recuperate. And in the car, she mishears him say, Chance the Gardener. And she thinks that his name is Chancey Gardener. And that's where he actually gets his name from. Because <laughs> he doesn't have a name, you know. doesn't have a proper right, name like that, right. Chancey Gardener. Anyway, then um, Benjamin Rand really takes to Chance and starts to think that he's a profound man. Um, so his his natural sort of reserved manner is taken for good breeding and his old-fashioned clothes for super smartness, you know, be well brought up. And <laughs> he's wearing clothes from decades in the past, you know, and... Um, Every time that Chance makes simple statements about gardening, then Ben takes that as a profound metaphor for business growth and the economy. That leads then eventually to meetings with the President of the United States, because Ben is, I would say it this way, he's on very good terms with the President. I'll have more to say about that in a minute. And this then leads the President to thinking that Chance is profound as well. So Chance gets on TV and he's a great success and all his metaphors are therefore interpreted by the show host of of the TV programme and so the audience love him, the, the watching audience love him as well and think that he's you know something fresh on the political scene yeah. anyway uh, Rand Benjamin Rand dies and at his funeral while the, the president yeah. is delivering his speech the coffin bearers <laughs> the pallbearers quietly talk about well who's going to be the next president of the United States and, and they, they quietly whisper that yeah Chancey Gardner and, the, and as this coffin is slowly carried towards the Rand family tomb that family tomb is in the shape of a pyramid <laughs> with the eye of Horus over the top it's a wonderful wonderful moment and um, and you think that's going to be the end, and yet there's a really surreal moment then where Chance wanders off aimlessly across the water. Walks on water. Oh, he yeah. walks on water, as the, yeah, as the yeah, president yeah. quotes Benjamin Rand saying, life is a state of mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, I mean, it's, it's absolutely packed, full of commentary, really. Um, I thought yeah. that this character, Chance, is a, you know, he's entirely a creation of corporate interest and the media. He does have a personality, but it's absolutely minimal. So it's virtually one could say he has no personality, he has no ideas, he just is a nothing, you know. He's just there, being there, and he's moulded by all these forces. In the film, it's they misunderstand him, but that's a, a device, really, for this. But essentially, mm. he, he's moulded by all this. And I couldn't help but think of George W. Bush. Yeah, <laughs> You yeah. know, because how did Bush come to be president? You know, just by being there, in a sense, by being the son of, of George Herbert Walker Bush... You know, I'm not saying he's simple-minded as Chansey, of course, but um, 
mean, I understand that he was mm. fairly average student at Yale, <laughs> but yeah. but you know, essentially just there, belonging to the right family. And uh, Chance is, a, is, as I say, a creation of the media. But he literally was right from the beginning as well, because right from the beginning of the program, he's there copying the things that he sees on TV, how people shake hands and and how people hold each other in an embrace and all this. So that theme runs all the way through, that he is a construct. He also has no history. The Secret Service are desperately trying to find out anything they can about this Chauncey Gardner as he becomes more and more you know, in the limelight. And because he lived in that old house, just tending the garden, he has no history. And that reminded me of the obscurity, of course, of Barack Obama's past and how people have said, you know, did he go to this college? Did he go there? You know, I I was at that course and I don't remember him there. And nobody I I know (laughs) remembers him, you know. And all of these kinds of claims, of course, have been challenged and the like. But nevertheless, there is an obscurity, isn't there? Mm. There is a kind of murkiness to Obama's past. And, you know, I think that's useful, isn't it? Perhaps you can shape how the system can shape such a person free from the constraints that your past might impose so you know they did remind me of that so of course he's mistaken as profound the media Mm. makes him seem profound (laughs) and he becomes a success with the public because of that because they're desperate for change he's like a sort of product a media product that's sold to the audience Um, another thing is that the president in this movie is clearly subservient to benjamin rand Uh, you know, that power relationship is very, very clear that, you know, uh, it's the president who visits Rand. It's not the other way around. Rand clearly speaks as if he's a president picker, mm-hmm. you know. And and also the pallbearers, whoever they are, they, they also, they're choosing who's going to be the next <laughs> president. So that that's a very clear power relationship in the film. The obscene wealth and the detachment of Benjamin Rand. I mean, he comes over as a kind of nice sort of grandfatherly figure, but nevertheless, he's he's obscenely wealthy. He's detached from the real world, and you that's you see that clearly in his private hospital because he's dying of this young person's yeah. disease. He says <laughs> where he has to constantly have all these blood transfusions just to keep him alive. Yeah. And, and these weird scenes of this private hospital and the, the austere grandeur of, of of the house and these servants. And as we said before, there's that hint of secret society there with the the family tomb and the occult symbol over the door which I find fascinating that should be hinted at too and I think the brilliance of it as a comedy production there are so many factors to this as I mentioned before the slow growth of the comedy so it changes it's almost like it's changing in style as it goes through and speeding up so it becomes more comic towards Mm. the end in a faster way and the, the absolute deadpan performance of Sellers and the, the use of minimal music, um, Eric Satie's minimalist style piano music and the, the use of surrealist imagery, um, I think in the style of Magritte, especially at the end, you know, when he's walking on water with his, with his hat and his umbrella and all that, and just immediately think of those images there. And really the, the persistence of this same truth joke all the way through, that he is a puppet in the making, formed by these powerful forces... You know, yeah. it's, it's exaggerated, of course, but it's telling us something true about the world that we, we live in, isn't it? And so I, I thought that whole yeah. allegory of the film was brilliant, really, and I do consider that to be a truth movie in the way that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, the only time I've, I've ever seen that film was about uh, five or six years ago. And I have to say, I didn't actually like the film when I saw it, but I've got a feeling if I watched it again, I'd probably feel completely differently about it. Maybe I was just seeing it more as a straight, story that maybe that's where I was at whenever I watched it I just thought it was so implausible but I think that's now I realize that's kind of the point really (laughs) yeah 
it's one of those things where, in a way, you sort of need to yeah. see it all the way through to the end and then see that pyramid yeah. in that eye and think, oh, well, that's weird, and then think, oh, yeah, that's the kind of thing it's about. Then perhaps watch it a second time. <laughs> yeah, that's right, because when I watched it, um, the things I remembered, actually, and the things that I've just remembered as you've been talking, the thing about being shaped by television, and I didn't, I'd, I'd forgotten that Chauncey Gardner wasn't his real name, and, of course... James Evan Palato, media monarchy, who works with James Corbett, he calls Barack Obama Barry Sartoro, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. so apparently he thinks that's his real name. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, when I first watched it, it was I, I just sort of recently sort of come into all this sort of truth-moving information. And I watched it, and I just thought, well, ah, it's a good film. I like Peter Sellers and everything. Wasn't that mad keen on it. And then, you know, just literally the last 30 seconds, suddenly you see the casket and then the eye. And I've just been... <laughs> being given all this Illuminati information. And I just thought, what the, you know, and then, but isn't the line at the end something like, as long as we've got an idiot in the White House, we'll be fine or something like that? I actually don't recall that, actually, but uh, you might well be right. <laughs> I think I just watched the clip recently. Okay. Oh, maybe it's just as long as, as long as we've got Chauncey Gardner in the present, in the White House, we can control it. Or well, that's implied. That's what it? I absolutely implied. <laughs> Definitely. And again, again, we don't know who these pallbearers are. They're there, a lot of faceless people. But they're clearly important, as it were. They're clearly powerful. They're in with Benjamin Rand. They're decision makers. Presumably, they're members of this secret society. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> they're going in, aren't they, with the, with the coffin into the pyramid. Yeah. And they're going to choose the next president of the United States. <laughs> so if Peter Sellers was desperate to do it, um, I wonder whether he was uh, quite savvy in this area you know Who knows? it's an interesting question isn't it yeah i mean why else would he be so interested because i don't i don't think the story without the allegory is too brilliant i don't know if he took out the allegories would it be a great film i don't know wouldn't it wouldn't it be more like just a really implausible story or well, it might be, uh, I suppose, perhaps like Forrest Gump. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I didn't like Forrest Gump. That's probably why I didn't like being uh, there originally. But... All right. Well, I think I didn't like Forrest Gump much because I I like being there. But there you go. Uh, okay. <laughs> but uh, it, it seems like one of those films where you can't separate it from all the all the allegories. You know, all the imagery. You, you, mm. so, I don't actually remember that much comedy in it. It wasn't really gags, was it? Was it? Was it just not really gags? No. Uh, but th- this is what I find so remarkable about it. It's like a massive joke in slow yeah. motion, which is extraordinary. Yeah. But once you sort of you have that joke all the time in the back of your mind, and, and you're sort of appreciating how it's unfolding, I sort of watch it in a state of amusement. <laughs> Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense, I'm going to watch yeah. it again and get back to you sometime. Mm, sure. Yeah, I watch it with sort of fresh eyes. Yeah. Okay, back to you. You wanted to talk about uh, a couple of your uh, heroes, may I call them? Uh, uh, yeah. Carlin and Hicks? So, yeah. yeah. Over to you. Uh, yeah, definitely comedy heroes. I think Bill Hicks a bit more than uh, George Carlin, but uh, I'll talk about Bill Hicks first. So, yeah, he was a um, stand-up comedian. I think he's, he was he started when he was very young, but his sort of peak period was sort of late 80s, early 90s. And he actually died in uh, 1994, I think, and he was only 33. I think he died of pancreatic cancer. He was a heavy smoker. I think at the time that he was around, he was fairly well known. I mean, he was on a couple of British shows as well, and he appeared on The Letterman Show a few times. Had to sort of slightly sanitise his act, as you can imagine. And one of his acts was actually banned from The Letterman Show. That's become sort of... All these things that they always become more interesting to people when they're banned, as you know. Yes. But um, since this sort of alternative media has arisen in the last, uh, say, six or seven years, he's become, as George Carlin has, a real guru 
to these people because people are realizing that the stuff he was talking about, you know, and this was back in the 90s, just as Yes Minister was back in the 80s, it, we we're starting to realize that what he was saying was very prescient. So uh, I'll briefly go over a few things. Um, he was a Texan and he was around at the time of the Waco siege. And for anyone who's, who doesn't really know anything about that or doesn't know anything beyond the mainstream story, there's a very good documentary called Waco Rules of Engagement. There is lots of evidence saying that the mainstream version is not accurate or entirely accurate. And Bill Hicks actually drove to the compound and witnessed some of what was going on. What I like about him is that he's able to combine comedy and profundity actually in the same joke, not only in the same sort of routine, but at the same time, which I think is an, is an amazing skill. And he does a joke about David Koresh, this guy who was um, apparently promoting himself as the messiah of this cult, uh, which included uh, a lot of women and children. And David Koresh's real name was Vernon. And Bill Hicks used to say, um, if you were called Vernon, wouldn't you want to be Jesus? You know, I mean, come on, the guy's name is Vernon. And he's making fun of the name Vernon and saying no one's going to worship someone called Vernon. So he had to change his name to Koresh and, and promote himself right. as Jesus. Mm. Then in the same routine, he very sort of quickly moves it on to talking about um, some of the video that was on public access TV in America. Which I think it's C-SPAN, but I may be wrong. And you can clearly see that the Bradley tanks, which are the government tanks, shooting fire into the compound. And uh, Bill Hicks... Basically, I feel that he was using a technique which was making people laugh, disarming them, and then hitting them with something serious. Not to beat around the bush, he said, you know, this proves, doesn't it, that, you know, Clinton and Janet Reno are liars and murderers, you know, which is strong stuff, particularly sort of 30 seconds after a gag about a guy called Vernon. So he had a very good technique. I mean, he was a master of comedy. I mean, he started doing stand-up, I think, when he was about 13. So he, he was well-seasoned by the time he was 30 years old. I haven't seen a great deal mm. of his stuff, but the thing that really struck me at the mm. clips that I was looking at was his routine on JFK. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was very cleverly done. Yeah. As you say, playing on something which is is disturbing, and yet somehow had that ability to bring out the absurdity of the official position about it at the same time. He was actually talking about you know the head going in the wrong yeah. direction from the official story. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. right. And constantly sort of saying to the audience, in, not actually saying, but you know, to implying to the audience all the time, but shouldn't it come from the other side? Shouldn't we come from the other side? But no, no, it's going this way. But no, we shouldn't. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. And, and then yeah. his technique was achieving that. So I was, I was very impressed with that. Yeah, and, and another great routine because he did. This the JFK routine a few times but he always changed it slightly uh -huh. and he said uh, I love talking about JFK because it's a great example of how the totalitarian government who rules this planet partitions our information in such a way that we the masses are forced to base our conclusions on erroneous and he says oh sorry wrong meeting <laughs> that's the meeting at the docks and he said uh, god what's strange about that everyone went with me no one stopped me and in a way he's almost telling people that they were realizing that he's probably telling the truth subconsciously so he's making fun of conspiracy theory while sort of implying that he believes in it. And then also he said there's now an assassination museum, which is in the book depository. He says, I think it was named after the assassination, but I'm not sure of the chronology. <laughs> <laughs> this is the great bit. He says, uh, you can't actually go to the Cypher's Nest where Oswald uh, supposedly fired the bullets. And he said, do you know why? And he said, because they don't want thousands of American tourists going there and going, there's no way, I can't even see the road. You know, which again, you know, it's brilliant. And you have to think, well, why would they have an assassination museum, but they're not actually letting you see the point where he supplied the bullets? And I mean, I haven't been to Texas, but I'd imagine that 
Bill Hicks is probably right. You'd get there and think, well, that'd be difficult, you know, moving target from that range. So very, very clever. What was it, Bill Hicks, who also did that routine that you discussed before when we were talking about uh, taking the latest president to watch the Zabruder film? Was that the one? Yeah, yeah. If you don't mind, I'm going to quote. Um, He just said, uh, I have this feeling that whoever is elected president, like Clinton was, and Clinton was president in the 90s, no matter what you promise on the campaign trail, blah, 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 when you win, you go into a smoke-filled room with the 12 industrialists who run the world and got you in there, and you're in this smoky room and this film screen comes down and a big guy with a cigar goes, roll the film. And it's the shot of the Kennedy assassination from an angle you've never seen before that looks suspiciously like it's from the grassy knoll. And I think he actually did another routine where he said, if you look very closely, the gun's got CIA written on the side of it. <laughs> <laughs> and then the screen goes up and the lights come up and they say to the new president, any questions? <laughs> and the president just says, uh, just what my agenda is. That's all. <laughs> Yes, priceless. And, uh, priceless. When I, when I heard that, I was um, I was talking to a friend of mine. I was saying, can you imagine like Obama in two thousand and nine? He goes in to meet the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which is you know all the old generals, the military advisors, and saying, uh, by the way, guys, there's going to be no more war from now on. You know, can you imagine uh, the belly laugh he'd get from them? You know, the idea that the president could go in there. Mr. Anti-War and actually tell the top general advisors, military advisors, there's going to be no more war. I mean, it's absurd. You know, it's a war economy at the end of the day. So I think he was well on the mark mm-hmm. there. And the curious thing about that JFK joke you yeah. counted there is that, um, you know, I get the impression that a lot of people would find themselves almost with a kind of gut reaction to that and laughing who would, in just a normal conversation, perhaps not want to go there at all. Yes, the comedy has that power to to break through and sort of release that pressure valve. Yeah, I mean, I did actually do a little bit of stand up comedy myself. I mean, uh, uh-huh. just li- just literally about sort of five gigs, newcomer stuff. Yeah. And one of the things is that when you have a good compare, and I don't know if Bill Hicks had a compare, but the compare gets everyone in a certain mood. You know, there's obviously a couple of drinks flowing at the same time, and comedy. You're right; it has that license. Mm. When people are at a comedy show, they just feel free because they feel like someone like Bill Hicks or Carlin or whoever, they're kind of fairly out there guys. And you feel like, probably subconsciously, they're allowing me to indulge what I think is probably true, but I'm generally too yes. scared to talk about, you know, in the office or, or whatever. I think, I think you're absolutely right there. The other thing that's very interesting and is a very direct correlation is that when Bill Hicks was doing his routines, the, the Gulf War was going on, the first Gulf War, which is, you know, 1991. And what's incredibly interesting is that virtually everything he's saying could be applied to the second Iraq war in 2003. He says, um, I've got some news for you. There never was a war in Iraq. A war is where two sides are fighting. And then he gives a, a statistic about the discrepancy in the casualties. And I don't remember the Iraqi casualties, but it's something like, you know, 50,000. American casualties, 79. He says, does that mean if we'd sent 80 guys, we still would have won? And I mean, again, it's brilliant. I mean, he's making a, a brilliant point And another skit he does. Uh, uh, have you ever seen the movie Shane with uh, Jack Palance? He, he just references one scene where um, Jack Palance is this gunslinger and he says uh, he's forcing the, this goat herder. And when I thought of goat herder, I suddenly thought Afghanistan, because Afghanistan's full of goat herders, you know, sort of mountain people who, you know, probably know nothing about 9-11 or what's going on politically. And in this film, he said, Jack Palance is saying to the goat herder, pick up the gun. And the goat herder's going, no, no, I don't want any trouble. No, I don't want to pick up. Pick up the gun. 
He's going, no, 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 mister, I, I, I'm just, you know, I'm just here with my family. I don't want any trouble. Pick up the gun. And then the goat herder picks up the gun and uh, Shane shoots him and says, you saw him, he had a gun. <laughs> and I mean, yeah. you know, there you go, you know, selling weapons to the enemy and then as soon as they use them, we wipe them out. I mean, the other thing, uh, he says, um, uh, everyone got very excited about the weapons, you know, incredible weapons, incredible weapons. And uh, again, as, as just a, a reference that maybe we could put a link to, there's a documentary called Militainment Inc., and if you've never seen it, it's absolutely essential because it's all about how the media um, spun the Iraq war. And a lot of it is them talking about how wonderful the technology is. And you get these sort of lighthearted reports from Fox of like their embedded journalists, you know, admiring these weapons. And uh, Bill Hicks said, um, how did America know they had the weapons? And he said, uh, they had incredible weapons. We know. We saw the receipts. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I was oh, saying dear. that America sold the weapons. And I actually have a person that's very close to me who I'd rather not name because I don't want to implicate them, who actually used to work at Heathrow Airport and actually saw planes going off with weapons from British companies being shipped off to Iraq. So he, he almost literally saw the receipts. I don't know if he literally did, but, you know, and, and Bill Hicks just said this one other thing about um, everyone's so impressed with these sort of stealth bombs and everything, but couldn't you use that technology to shoot food at hungry people? And then he does a routine, the stealth banana, with this amazing technology shooting bananas down to hungry people. I mean, it's brilliant stuff, you know, absolutely brilliant. And and you, you find a, a similar kind of brilliance in... Carlin as well, don't you, George Carlin? Yeah. I mean, the, the trouble is, I've you know, he's so anti-religion, he's so anti-Christian mm -hmm. uh, specifically yeah. as well, that I find it difficult to engage with him, I have to say. Um, mm. You sent me this link, didn't you, to a routine that he did where he's actually criticising, well, he's purporting anyway to criticise Christianity, yeah. but I have to say virtually everything that he says in that I don't recognize as being what I believe yes. <laughs> you know so you know that's a curious thing there where you know I'm somehow associated with this criticism that's going on which is very expertly done I have to say I admire his yeah. skill but yeah. I think he's attacking a straw man there and it's difficult for me to engage with him because of that mm. yeah George Carlin over time I've I've come to like him a bit less than I did before I sort of realized at a point that He's got his audience in his pocket, and his audience will laugh at anything he says. Absolutely. And actually, when I sent yeah. you that um, thing about religion, I, I was I was impressed by your reply because he suddenly made me realise that you know what he's saying is incredibly surface. I mean, he was saying um, people have been convinced that there's an old man in the sky who, if you don't follow him, is going to condemn you to a, a hellfire and brimstone. But he loves you, and yeah. uh, I think it's sort of relevant to people that are not very discerning in their beliefs which is probably true of, yeah. of almost anything you know comedy can be dangerous in the hands of people who don't want to think for themselves you know well this is the thing i mean yeah. i recognize many of the things he says in that as being on the lips of the kind of christian preacher that i wouldn't want to having to do with you know I'd, i'm aware that there are such people who say things like that who are quite ignorant in their um, articulation of Christianity but you know if you're then going to imply that all Christians are yeah. the same well you could do that with anything couldn't you You could find the worst example of something hold that up as your straw man and then knock it down uh, well you know what's really been achieved with that but I mean on a technical level I concede that he was brilliant the, the example you've just 
shown there. But he loves you. That's right, but he loves you, yes. The, the way that was delivered, he built it up and then threw that punchline in there, you know, I have to say was brilliantly done, mm-hmm. but the content was yeah. arrogant and ignorant. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, that, that's the thing. I mean, but Hicks and Carlin are both fantastic timing, but, you know, that's probably from doing, oh, you absolutely. know, two to three hundred gigs sure, a year. Sure, Craftsman, there's no doubt about it, yeah. Although there's one thing I would say, actually, on the craftsmanship mm-hmm. element, and, and that is the overuse of swearing, actually. Yes. Because I do think that swearing can be used as a device in your comedy really effectively. Yeah. But when you pepper it full of swear words, they lose their currency, you know. Oh, and a- this is one of the things that the comic Frank Skinner here in the UK has said, that he's got to the point where he just thinks it has no currency anymore. So at least as far as he's concerned, he's going to knock it down to an absolute minimum so that when it does happen, then it really has an effect. And I think he's got a good point, actually. Yeah, I remember, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the play The Caretaker by Harold Pinter. Yes. Yes. Yeah, uh, uh, yes, I like Pinter. it's just three actors in it. It's a tramp and two brothers. And right at the end, um, one of the brothers just says to the tramp, you stink. And without swearing, it's it's just delivered in such a good way and it's such a good line that it's just the ultimate insult. And I, th- I think the way he delivers it is far more dismissive than using swearing. So mm. I agree with you. I mean, I like Joe Rogan's podcast, but when... When Joe Rogan has certain people on there, it's just F this and F that. and mm. It's not that I'm offended in, in the slightest. It's more exactly. that not effective yes. because it's just it's just repeating. This. It's almost like repeating another word. If I kept repeating the same word all the time, it would get boring, wouldn't it? Yes, yeah, expansion of the four-letter word supply. It results in inflation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think one sort of difference between Hicks and Carlin, I think Hicks was slightly more heartfelt. And I, I, think, I think Carlin... Right. I mean, he was a non-political comedian for nigh on 30 years, I think. It was only towards the end of his life, you know, when he was probably in his 70s, that he maybe had an awakening, there you go, and uh, changed his style. But um, can I just quote you a couple of uh, Carlin? Sure. A couple of my favourites. His most famous speech, I think, is uh, called The Owners of the Country, and you you can find that on YouTube. Um, He says, uh, it's never, ever going to be fixed. It's never going to get any better because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget politicians, they're an irrelevancy. Politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. It's a big club and you ain't in it. (laughs) That's the last line. It's, it's great timing, you know, I can't repeat this timing. Yes. So. It's interesting, isn't it, that virtually everything said there was not funny. Exactly. But it yeah. built up to that point where he put the punchline there on the end and, and then the whole thing became funny and true at the same time. When you hear him say that, and he's clearly not reading a speech, mm. it's so powerful when someone says all that stuff and it just comes out with passion and in a torrent, you know, it's, it's very powerful. And um, the other one is pretty similar. I mean, it's just a quick quote. Politicians are in place to give the public the illusion that they have choice. All the important things, such as media and politics, are illusions of choice, narrowed down to nothing. But there are 20 types of bagel. The limits of presidential debates are established before they even begin. Anyone outside those limits is a communist, extremist, kook, conspiracy theorist. It can't be entertained for a minute that powerful people might get together and have a plan. It doesn't happen. You're a kook and a conspiracy buff. In reality, you don't need a conspiracy when you have similar interests and don't need to call a meeting. These people go to the same country clubs and belong to think tanks. And uh, he's talking generally about Council of Foreign Relations, Bilderberg. Yeah, that's it. And of course, this is me talking now. Illuminati is the, is the buzzword, but someone used it against me recently to, because it sounds more mystical. You know, No one can defend the Council on Foreign Relations or the Trilateral Commission. 
but Illuminati is an easy one because it sounds sort of mystical. That's right, and it yes. may or may not exist. Yeah, but I like I like the George Carlin, the illusion of choice. I think that's great. You know, you've got twenty five flavors of ice cream, but the real choices are narrowed down to virtually nothing. You know, it's great stuff. Yeah, being a, a fan of Bill Hicks and George Carlin, it's hard to find people that are quite as edgy as them now. But um, someone who's sort of becoming like that is Louis C.K., who's had his own series, and I've followed him for a few years. And he's gradually sort of phasing out the more silly stuff and trying to be a bit more profound. And there's, there's one um, thing he does all about technology. He says, uh, you know, you need the ability to be yourself, which is what technology has taken away. It's taken away our ability to be ourselves. You know, because beneath everything, we all have this emptiness. It's buried deep. And we realize that in a lot of ways, we're alone in the world. And he said, now, when I feel sad, I let myself be sad. And I cry my eyes out if I want to. But most people, what they do is, the moment they feel a bit sad, they get their phone out and they start texting and saying hi to 50 people, looking forward to that lovely moment when everyone replies to you. He said, some people text and drive and would rather kill someone in their car than feel sad for a second. And he said, sadness is poetic. You know, it's a great clip. He's on the Conan O'Brien show. So, Well, I often think that boredom is actually very important. Yeah, you would say. That my daughter frequently says, well, I'm bored, and then she fills it in, as you say, with messing about with her iPod yeah. or something like that. And I frequently say to her, well, actually, sometimes it's a good thing mm. to be bored. Because then you start to introspect yeah. and you, you start to philosophize and you, you pick up a book and you become creative and without that space. That yeah, and as I think we were saying uh, last time we spoke, I think people are afraid of, of the silence. They're afraid of the space. You know, they've, they've got to fill it with something. And um, I think sure. getting yourself away from things as well. It's difficult to be creative when you've got so many things which are just laid on for you. They're just a button away. And television's, of course, a good example because you're not doing any work. You're a sort of passive observer and everything is being given to you. Mm. So you have no space to reflect on who you are, what life's about, and, and perhaps reach life-changing conclusions. But if you're constantly looking at that little screen, <laughs> you can't do it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I'd say to anyone, if you really want to, if you really want to confront yourself, do a 10 day silent meditation retreat and you'll, you'll soon realize <laughs> what you are and what you are. You know, it's incredible. Um, I wanted to say something kind of not exactly negative about comedy itself, because yeah. I think of comedy as a tool, but therefore negative in the sense that, you know, any tool can be wielded for good purposes or bad. You know, it's a power that I think can obscure truth, yeah. not just uncover it. Yeah. This is something that I experience when I watch programs like QI, Mock the Week. Sometimes have I got news for you, these very successful programs here in the UK. And not all the time, but nevertheless, I do sometimes experience that sense of comedy actually working to obscure truth because often there's a kind of group think, a group feel amongst these comedians and, and the audience. And the whole thing, is, of course, has been created by producers. Yeah. So the, the personality and thoughts of the producer are projected onto this whole sociological space that's there. And it's very difficult for people who might disagree with whatever the mm. wisdom of the group is to express dissent. And so you will get some consensus view on something that's being joked about and you think to yourself, well, there, there must be occasionally somebody on the panel who doesn't like that, who disagrees, but you know that they can't stand aside from it and disagree because they would then be a killjoy. Mm. And so it's a whole limiting yeah. process that's going on there, a very powerful one. I mean, I experienced this particularly with one episode of Have I Got News For You where Dan Snow, 
presenter Dan Snow was on the programme and he made some kind of tangential remark about JFK's assassination. I can't remember what he said, but he gave the impression anyway that he didn't believe the official position about it. And there was silence. There was a definite sense that that was not the kind of thing that you should say on that programme. And that groupthink mentality was so strong that nobody who, who might actually agree with Dan Snow was able to express anything. There wasn't much reaction from the audience either. So it's a very powerful situation that's set up there. And I was disappointed mm. that Ian Hislop, I think, didn't react in the normal way that he would have done. Whether he agree or disagree, I think he would normally have reacted. You know, if he'd have agreed, he'd probably have done a kind of shock horror face and turned to the audience, oh, you mean you don't believe the yeah. or you know, that sort of thing. Or he could have done the opposite thing, you know, and said, oh, I see you're wearing a tin hat today or something like tin foil. But he, he shut up. Everybody shut up. And so it was a really interesting situation there where the whole comic space was a cloud and so the tool, I think, was being used inappropriately there by whoever set up that situation. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking that I'm not sure. I'm sure you're right, but I'm not sure whether it even matters that it was a comedy program. I think I think that would happen in anything because you have the mainstream line. And yeah, yeah, but the point is that comedy never takes place in a non-sociological context. You've got a person who's telling the joke, as it were, and you've got an audience. There's always some right. kind of context there, isn't there? I mean, I experience this in my personal life. You know, there are some people who expect me yeah. to be funny, and so I can make some lame joke, and you get a big laugh. And then there are other social contexts in which you're not expected to be the person who's funny and you make perhaps yeah. a really good quip and you know nobody laughs or whatever which is embarrassing and i've always found that one difficult to judge actually so comedy is always yeah. a sociological thing that's going on so you know i agree it can happen in lots of contexts not just in, in a comic context but it is a tool that functions in that yeah. way and so you know i think we need to be aware that it has its negative side as well so you know very often that the idea is that if a joke is made and it's it's funny there's that sense of oh that's so true and it can have the power of making you feel oh that's so true but as i said before if the premises are wrong yeah. if the social context is wrong actually you can be kidded almost into thinking oh that's so true when it actually isn't true i'll tell you what else i was just thinking when you're saying that when you've got an edgy comedian supposedly edgy comedian like um, bill maher in america john stewart of the daily show and maybe stephen colbert when you've got those guys on mainstream TV, because they're considered edgy, and by mainstream standards, they are quite edgy. Uh, Bill Maher, of course, um, famously chucked the, some 9-11 truthers out of his studio. What I realize, you know, if you really think about that closely, Bill Maher's edgy. I mean, he, he got sacked because he said that suicide bombers weren't cowards. Isn't it more cowardly to drop a drone than to blow yourself up? Which, you know, I would agree with. But um, because... In the mainstream, he's considered edgy. The fact that he's throwing 9-11 truthers out of studio is saying to people, well, Bill Maher's really out there, but even he's yeah. not so out there to think 9-11 could have been not what we think it was. So it's very clever. You know, it's, I, I don't know whether that's completely contrived, but I think you're right. And I've made brief mention to, of Ian Hislop in my blog post because not only is, in, is he on Five On News For You, but he's editor of a newspaper or a magazine called Private Eye, which, again, it spends all its time exposing corruption, left, right and centre, every single issue about um, you know, politicians taking backhanders. But as soon as there's anything resembling an alternative explanation, it's you know, cartoons of tinfoil hats. It's so frustrating that Ian Hislop, for example, is, frustrates me a lot. So, okay. yeah, I'm with you on that one. Well, I wanted to move on to something that seems a little unrelated at first sight, 
But at the beginning, I said that mm-hmm. I thought we would discuss truth comedy in the sense of pinpointing things that are external going on in the world, but also internal going on inside our own worlds. And I wanted to mention a couple of heroes of mine who I think yes. did this brilliantly, and that's Andy Kaufman and Spike Milligan, funnily enough. And I think they were helping us to kind of reassess our assumptions about reality, the kind of things that we mm-hmm. unthinkingly take for granted. Uh, I certainly consider that to be part of what the truth movement is about you know it's not just an external thing is it it's also assessing ourselves and critically examining what it is we believe to be true and i make the quite clear that i don't think the result of that is necessarily to jettison everything you believe to be true you know but to submit it to critical thought so i want to just start with andy kaufman he never claimed to be a comedian as such but he claimed to be an artist a performance artist now, maybe that was a joke in itself, I don't know, but I don't think so. I, don't, I take him literally on that. So I remember him doing what I would call performance art events or happenings yeah. that sort of coincide with what many people would classify as comedy. So, of course, he was therefore performing in comedy contexts. Right. But he would, as he did that performance in that comedy context, he would then break so many of the rules of what's expected. And so much of what he was doing was also involving the audience, the actual reaction of the audience yeah. is inseparable from the performance itself, which I thought was, was re- remarkable. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Often with a comedian, you know, you could have the jokes there and you could understand the joke and you could sort of sit back uh, you know, on your TV and watch a performance. It didn't matter whether the audience there, you could have candle after or something. But with this, it, there's no way you could do that because he was interacting with the audience and getting audience up and insulting them or whatever, you know, or getting stooges up and insulting them. And, and you could see, I mean, in that particular example that I sent the link to you, this was of his performance. Um, it's 1977 at the HBO, that's the home box office cable channel, uh, Young Comedians Impro special that they had there. And I think it's an amazing performance where he, you know, he starts off on the stage by telling bad jokes. And it doesn't get much of a laugh, you know, sort of sympathy laughs, you know. And then he starts to appear nervous and and a bit upset, and he tells some more weak jokes, and then he pretends not to understand why Mm. everybody's laughing in the wrong places. And he starts apologising for being there, and then he leaves the stage. Mm. And then he comes back on, and he starts to apologise some more, and and he starts crying, (laughs) you know. And you can tell that some of the audience understand, well, sort of understand, this is, ah, yeah, this is a performance, and... And you can get the impression on some people's faces they don't know what's going on. And then that sobbing yeah. becomes rhythmic, and that then allows him to join in with that rhythm yeah. on, on the drums, on the timbal that are there. And so that's a segue into that drum performance, and that then allows everybody to understand that the whole thing was a performance, because it's now, da-da, that's, you know, that's the end of the performance. So the whole thing then is understood as being this kind of happening, this rather mm-hmm. than what you'd normally expect to be a comedy routine. So, you know, what is going on with that, he claimed that it wasn't comedy, so I think it was performance art, and I think this essentially it was kind of messing with people's heads, messing with people's expectations. It's redefining the experience that people have, are having. It's, it's, I think it's, it's art in this wider sense. So therefore, it's causing people, if, if you actually reflect upon it, to question the, the very assumptions that you bring to the performance that you've come to see. Right. So I think, therefore, and this is the way I interpret it, that invites you to reflect more generally about your assumptions. Why are you categorizing things in the way that you are? Is it because you've thought that through? Or is it because you're just accepting what you've been taught, you've been indoctrinated with, or this is so-and-so? Yeah. And he's breaking all that apart. And I think it's very much related to the kind of surrealist 
particularly the Fluxus movement in the 1960s, where you, mm. you got people like you know John Cage and Stockhausen. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And the, just sort of out, of out of my head, I remember reading a, a brochure about the Fluxus movement, and um, there was a guy called Nam Juan Pike, who was a Korean American artist, and I remember reading that he walked up to John Cage and cut his tie off. Mm. And that was the performance. And, you know, that's bizarre. You could say, is, that's comedy, is it? Well, no, it was just a happening. It was an event. And the whole point is the challenge of preconceptions. And I'm quite sure that that's what Kaufman was doing. And I think that's really valuable as a kind of truth comedy mm. because it's causing you, if, if you reflect upon it and understand what's going on, to examine your prejudices and your assumptions. Wow, interesting. I mean, when you sent me the video, I, mean, I was probably in a bit of a hurry when I watched it. I was probably expecting something along the lines of Hicks or Carlin. I didn't realise it wasn't a political thing, but I did pick up on the fact that it was all it was all ironic and that he was giving a bad comedy performance. Didn't he disappear, is that right? Because R.E.M. wrote that song about him. He did die, that's right. And then there was this big thing as a, had he really died? Uh, he, did right. so he did so many stunts uh, that there was a big question about that. How he's going to reappear. Uh, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll investigate some more of that. But uh, I did notice the irony and I was noticing that he was, was challenging the audience to, to, I don't know, abuse him or, or do something, you know? Yeah. And then he started abusing them. And it <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And there's another guy that I wanted to mention, of course, was Spike Miller. Mm. This is different again because obviously his claim was to be a comedian, but I think his comedy was art. Yeah. And I think that at its best, and there, there were many flops with Milligan, I, w I would agree, but that, that, that he sort of had to have that space to make lots and lots of mistakes. Yeah. But occasionally I think he just came up with something which was genius. And I think at his best he does pose questions like, uh, you know, why should comedy be limited by conventions at all? Mm. Who says that a sketch must even be classified as a sketch. Why should it have a beginning? Why should it have a middle? Why should it have an end? Why should it have any gags? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's right. Why should it have gags? Why should it not have gags? Wherever I want them. I, I noticed so many times in his later series that he would get to the point in obviously writing the sketch, thinking, well, now I've got to have some sort of punchline. Where do we go? What am I going to do now is obviously going through his head. And eventually he went for the solution. I know. I'll say, what are we going to do now? <laughs> so he did. And not only did he do, but all the people who were involved in the sketch all started chanting, what are we going to do now? What are we going to And just slope off. Yeah. I mean, just absolutely bizarre, but it broke the convention that you had to have a punchline. You know, and Monty Python, of course, was so influenced by this because they, they had all that Absolutely. sort of, you know, satirical stuff of the Frost Report and that was the week that was. And, all that. and if they'd stayed like that, they would never, of course, risen to the heights that they achieved. They had to have something like Milligan and they accept that they were influenced by that in order to have that surreal breaking of all the rules in order for them to marry that the satirical and the surreal and do what they did. Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, Milligan was, was absolutely brilliant in achieving that. Now, that's all sort of internal to the world of comedy, but Milligan did also have an activist side to him, mm. you know, because he was very active in, in environmentalism and he had lots of health, you know, mental health problems himself, so he was active with regard to people coming to understand the issues yeah. regarding to mental health. Certainly in his later series, the last one was called There's a Lot of It About, there were lots of concerns about injustice, privilege and class, and these kinds of images came into the comedy as well, so he was making statements about that. So there is, there certainly is a, a political side to him, but I, I do agree that a lot of it is centred in the kind of pure comedy constructs that he was breaking apart. But some of those are absolutely brilliant. Um, 
I've just got to mention it. This is my favourite sketch, and I, I think a lot of people listening will, may not connect with this because you actually have to see it. It happens in about a minute, and it's just two people. On one side of the stage, you have a, a guy comes in, he's dressed in overalls, covered in paint, and he's got a paint pot and a brush, and he's got a stepladder. There's no doubting what he is, right? He comes and erects this stepladder at the side of the stage, and he stands there, I don't know, 10, 15 seconds. Then Spike Milligan appears the other side of the stage dressed as a monk and just looks out at the audience with praying hands. <laughs> then he just turns to the other guy and he says, um, is that your stepladder? And the man says, no. Is it yours? And then the monk pulls out a banana, shows it to the audience and says, yes, it is. <laughs> and then the curtain closes. And that's it. And, and I've actually done that myself half a dozen times or so. I've performed that with another person in various social contexts and it, it's fascinating to see the reaction because oh, you get yeah. silence four or five seconds where the audience just thinks what on earth is that that doesn't make any sense There's, and then you can hear that people start to get yeah. bits of the many jokes that are packed into that because it's like a gem packed with several jokes into just a few seconds <laughs> and they, they start to get it and then you get waves of of laughter and, and I'm not claiming to be a great performer, you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, I'm just, I've just done it. It's, it's the material itself just works. And w yeah. what I find remarkable about it is that if, if you start analysing it, as the audience does begin to do in those few seconds of reaction, you know, you start to say, well, you know, the stepladder is obviously belongs to that man. So why does the monk ask that question? Is that your stepladder? That's obvious. So that's one ridiculous thing to start with. So, and then why does the man say no? It's not my stepladder. Because it is his stepladder. He came mm. on with it. So why then does he say to the monk... Is it yours? Because the monk has just asked him that question, so it makes no sense to ask the monk if it's his, because obviously it's not his. Mm. And then the monk produces this different object and answers the question that they've been asking all along in relation to the stepladder. He answers it with respect to this other object that he's brought into, into play. None of it makes any sense. It's all layers of ridiculousness, and it's mm. so quick, you know. And then there's the inevitable sexual innuendo as well, because it's a banana. Mm. But actually, it isn't an innuendo at all. It's just a kind of symbol of a joke that would, in another context, say a carry-on film, would be understood in that way. So if you think as an audience member that it's innuendo, especially if you're upset by that, then you've actually yourself imported that into the sketch. You've imported that interpretation. So you're showing yourself to be hypocritical mm. because you're complaining about something that you, ins you yourself have brought into the sketch. And all that is going on in just a few words. And I think that is genius. And the more I sort of reflect on that kind of thing, the more I think he's actually inviting us to question everything about what we expect a performance to be. And I think that has to you know, raise it to the level of art, I think. Wow. And question whether your thoughts are really your own as well. You know? Yes. I think in a way, if you do something absurd, which has absolutely no meaning at all even, I think in a way you're just commenting on the absurdity of the world, frankly. <laughs> John Cleese said um, about 10 years ago, he said, I'm in my 60s now, and what I've realised is the world's a madhouse. No one's really in control. You know, you've got laws, but no one's in control. No one really knows what they're doing. We're all actors. We're all acting. You know, the world's a madhouse, and when you realise that, it's freeing in a way, you know? It's, it's... Well, that's another dimension to it. In some respects, I'm going to go so far as to say that I think that's its own kind of deception, because that sort of implies that the world is actually these sort of free flux of uncontrolled things, which goes against many of the things that we've been talking about, where we're saying that actually you know, a lot of life is controlled by ruling elites and the like. So my reaction to this kind of surrealism is that it's freeing, as you say, but if we take it to extreme and say that there's no structure 
there's no truth. It's a sort of postmodern kind of extreme. I think that's actually destructive of critical thought. I think it just needs to free us from prejudices, things that we've not thought through properly. That's the reaction that I okay. have to this kind of thing. But I think the sort of world's a madhouse. That'd be a good segue to uh, Strange Love, actually, wouldn't it? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. Well, it would indeed. I suppose we've got to mention Strange Love, haven't we? Quick mention. So, yeah. Uh, quick mention. Yeah. Well. I think it's so well known, isn't it? What should we say about it? The, the kind of issues that were brought up, satirising the, the idea of mutually assured destruction <laughs> and the missile gap and the idea that you could win a, a nuclear war. I think it's absolutely brilliant satire. Yeah, and I mean, just the, the fact that the people in charge who we think are, are um, level-headed and uh, irrational may be sort of mad or, or buffoons or, or worse, you know. Obviously, the Doctor Strange character himself. Everyone will remember the fact yeah. that he, his his arm keeps going into a Heil Hitler position, and he keeps slapping it down. <laughs> He's desperate not to make the Hitler sign. And uh, I've read actually that that was Peter Sellers' own idea. Apparently, I think it was. Yeah, and actually, just as an aside, anyone who's watching the film, if you watch the Russian ambassador in the background, he can't stop laughing. The actor. He's trying to stop himself laughing as Peter Sellers is slapping his arm. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Well, it's a lovely reference there, isn't it, I think, to Operation Paperclip. Yeah. The use yeah. by the West of Nazi scientists who were criminals, <laughs> but they were of use. <laughs> Which is on Wikipedia, isn't it? So, <laughs> what do you mean, Operation Paperclip is on Wikipedia? Yeah, I'm just saying Wikipedia tends to not really entertain things which are not uh, provable, so uh, Operation Paperclip is real, you know. Like Operation Mockingbird as well is um, it's when the CIA infiltrating the media, it's real as well. So, Yeah, and just um, the sort of connection between war and sex. I mean, in the very last scene where uh, Slim Pickens is uh, riding the bomb, which obviously is eventually blowing up the world. Kong. That's it, it Kong, yeah. Major, Major Kong, that's it. And then we've got the idea, of course, uh, Jack D. Ripper, Jack the Ripper, brilliant Sterling Hayden, who's one of my favourite actors. Of course, he's impotent. He's denying uh, women his essence. Yeah. And, of course, that brings up the idea that war is covering up inadequacy, basically. Mm. You know, and, I mean, there's this terrible quote that is, is just so chilling, and it was something to do with George W. Bush saying he was going to finish off what his father started because, of course, George H.W. Bush was involved with the first Gulf War. And that idea, of course, that George W. Bush was born with a you know platinum spoon in his mouth and had failed. I mean, he'd failed with two oil companies and had failed at most that he'd done. And I don't know if it's true, but you know the idea that he would take out this terrible revenge to cover up all his inadequacies, you know, and I think that's an idea that Kubrick was playing with. And mm. a famous quote of Kubrick's was, never, ever go near power. Don't become friends with anyone who has real power. It's dangerous. And I think that's pretty profound as well. And I suppose the, the, the point was, say, this, this whole idea of the mutually assured destruction and this idea of the doomsday machine, yeah. this preposterous thing that was actually thought about and academically considered and I understand that you know there are engineers and scientists who thought it might actually be doable so to say that yeah. at the end of the day there's going to be some weakness in this where it's just a ridiculous notion even to consider and, and here you have in, in, in the hands of somebody who's not quite right and if he has that kind of power the, the system just goes completely wrong and it's, yeah. it's the, the, the madness of this kind of military strategizing and thinking that you can win something like this what, what do you make of all the fluoride thing with regard to that character I did actually do a blog post which I, I haven't posted it yet there was a speech I listened to a couple of years ago and the guy was saying that there are actually different types of fluoride and one is naturally occurring 
but uh, hydrofluorosilicic acid, which is supposedly is in the water supply and in toothpaste, it's basically the waste products of uh, certain industries. I, I can't remember which industry, metal industry or whatever, and they can't dump it legally, so it's put in very small amounts through the water supply. I think it might be fertilizer. Yeah, that's right. It's the waste from the fertilizer industry. You're right. And, um, of course, hydrofluorosilicic acid in, in its um, pure form can, uh, you know, burn through metal. I mean, it's absolutely lethal. You know, if you if you ingested a tiny bit of it in its pure form, you'd be dead, you know. But the official line, of course, is that it's, it's safe in the levels that are used. <laughs> yeah, but he's talking about officially uh, something like a one... thing is, I can't remember the measurement, so I can't really talk full authority, but there was one measurement, which is sort of a pinprick, which is safe, and then two pinpricks could cause damage, and then sort of five pinpricks can cause, like, bone damage and fluorosis. So it was the difference between pinpricks was the difference between a safe level and one that can cause uh, fluorosis and bone disease. Yeah, well, I've heard lots of presentations about it, and I'm quite convinced mm-hmm. that it's not something that's safe. Um, but, you know, back in the 50s mm-hmm. and 60s, and I know there was concern about it, but it wasn't so widespread as it is today, the concern about it. And so, you know, this guy... Jack D. Ripper, his character is such that he thinks that this is a communist plot, doesn't he? Yeah. This is what the Soviets are doing. They're fluoridating the water. Um, and I've heard people say things like, perhaps there's something going on here. There's some sort of message here, you know, saying that conspiracy theorists uh, are not quite right in the head or something. Yes. But I'm not sure that's what's going on with this film because, yeah. I don't know, things have changed since those days. I mean, if it was sort of generally at that time accepted that you know to have those sorts of concern might be associated with somebody who was paranoid perhaps mm. kubrick just took that as a uh, as an example that he could use at the time perhaps if he was writing the script these days it might yeah. be different you know what i mean I, yeah yeah i mean i think i think uh our f- my friend uh, rob ager who we've mentioned before who's done who's a bit of a kubrick obsessive he's fairly sure that kubrick was very well versed in um sort of alternative view of the world and i mean he was a voracious reader and he, he never left England, which I thought was interesting. That's that's one that the conspiracy people perhaps uh, would take as as a hint that you know maybe the authorities were a bit sort of um, wary of him that he didn't want to fly because as we've discussed before, there seem to be a lot of plane crashes in America. So if that's the case, then what do you think Kubrick was doing with that fluoride connection? Though? Maybe he's just dropping a hint, or, or and yet it comes over completely negatively, doesn't it? Yeah. Because this guy is nuts, and so you know, if he believes such a thing, that's associated with insanity. Maybe it's the communist element that maybe is more important than the fluoride element, perhaps. Yeah, maybe, maybe he was just taking mm. taking this mm. sort of meme that was out there, which is the fact that fluoride is is toxic. And maybe just playing more on the communist angle, as we were saying earlier, and as George Carlin said, you know, these words are so powerful: kook, communist, conspiracy theorist. You know, and you can just pull out these words, and, and X amount of people are gonna are gonna just take it as read. You know, he's a communist. You know, what does that mean? You know, <laughs> you don't really have to define what it means. I mean, you know, I'm not defending you know Russian communism by any stretch or Chinese communism. But, I mean, just the word on its own, it's given this power that doesn't really warrant just in its pure form, you know? Right, well, uh, we've been talking for a very, very long time, and one of the things that we were going to mention, which has slipped by, actually, was the great piece that James Corbett did on 9-11, yeah. a conspiracy theory, just a five minutes piece, isn't it? Yeah. And uh don't want it to go by without mentioning that, because I think it's... Well, I don't, James occasionally listens to this show, so I don't know whether we listen to this one, but uh, 
as, as he says, I'll say to him, hats off to you, James, for such a brilliant piece. Um, cause I think it's sarcasm at its best, really pointing out the absurdities in the official story. Mm. The speed of it, the detail, the timing of it creates this kind of cumulative effect, doesn't it? Just how ridiculous the official position is. Yeah. It works really, really powerfully. And I know that you know, he's given permission for people to use the material, so why not listen to it? Should we have a listen? Yep, absolutely. On the morning of September 11th, 2001, 19 men armed with box cutters directed by a man on dialysis in a cave fortress halfway around the world using a satellite phone and a laptop directed the most sophisticated penetration of the most heavily defended airspace in the world. Overpowering the passengers and the military combat trained pilots on four commercial aircraft before flying those planes wildly off course for over an hour without being molested by a single fighter interceptor. These 19 hijackers, devout religious fundamentalists who like to drink alcohol, snort cocaine, and live with pink-haired strippers, managed to knock down three buildings with two planes in New York. While in Washington, a pilot who couldn't handle a single-engine Cessna was able to fly a 757 in an 8,000-foot descending 270-degree corkscrew turn to come exactly level with the ground, hitting the Pentagon in the budget analyst office where DOD staffers were working on the mystery of the $2.3 trillion that Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld had announced missing from the Pentagon's coffers in a press conference the day before, on September 10th, 2001. Luckily, the news anchors knew who did it within minutes. Osama bin Laden. The pundits knew within hours. Osama bin Laden. The administration knew within the day. Terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbored them. And the evidence literally fell into the FBI's lap. That a hijacker's passport was found blocks from the World Trade Center crash site, if you can believe that. But for some reason, a bunch of crazy conspiracy theorists demanded an investigation into the greatest attack on American soil in history. That investigation was delayed, underfunded, set up to fail, a conflict of interest, and a cover-up from start to finish. It was based on testimony extracted through torture, the records of which were destroyed. It failed to mention the existence of WTC-7, Able Danger, P-TECH, Sibel Edmonds, OBL and the CIA, and the drills of hijacked aircraft being flown into buildings that were being simulated at the precise same time that those events were actually happening. It was lied to by the Pentagon, the CIA, the Bush administration, and as for Bush and Cheney, well, no one knows what they told it because they testified in secret, off the record, not under oath, and behind closed doors. It didn't bother to look at who funded the attacks because that question is ultimately of little practical significance. Still, the 9-11 Commission did brilliantly answering all of the questions the public had, except most of the victims' family members' questions, and pinned blame on all the people responsible, although no one so much as lost their job, determining the attacks were failure of imagination because nobody in our government at least, and I don't think the prior government that could envision flying airplanes in the buildings. Except the Pentagon, FEMA, NORAD, and the NRO. The DIA destroyed 2.5 terabytes of data on Able Danger, but that's okay because it probably wasn't important. The SEC destroyed their records on the investigation into the insider trading before the attacks, but that's okay because destroying the records of the largest investigation in SEC history is just part of routine record keeping. NIST has classified the data that they used for their model of WTC-7's collapse, but that's okay because knowing how they made their model of the collapse would jeopardize public safety. The FBI has argued that all material related to their investigation of 9-11 should be kept secret from the public, but that's okay because the FBI probably has nothing to hide. This man never existed, nor is anything he had to say worthy of your attention, and if you say otherwise, you are a paranoid conspiracy theorist and deserve to be shunned by all of humanity. Likewise him, 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 and her. And her, and her, and him. Osama bin Laden lived in a cave fortress in the hills of Afghanistan, but somehow got away. Then he was hiding out in Tora Bora, but somehow got away. 
Then he lived in Abbottabad for years, taunting the most comprehensive intelligence dragnet, employing the most sophisticated technology in the history of the world for a decade, releasing video after video with complete impunity and getting younger and younger as he did so, before finally being found in a daring SEAL team raid which wasn't recorded on video, in which he didn't resist or use his wife as a human shield, and in which these crack special forces operatives panicked and killed this unarmed man, supposedly the best source of intelligence about those dastardly terrorists on the entire planet. Then they dumped his body in the ocean before telling anyone about it. Then a couple dozen of that team's members died in a helicopter crash in Afghanistan. This is the story of 9-11, brought to you by the media which told you the hard truths about His head could be seen to move violently forward. And They took the babies out of the incubators. And Mobile production facilities. And The rescue of Jessica Lynch. If you have any questions about this story, you are a paranoid, tinfoil, dog-abusing baby hater and will be reviled by everyone. If you love your country and or freedom, happiness, rainbows, rock and roll, puppy dogs, apple pie, and your grandma, you will never ever express doubts about any part of this story to anyone. Ever. This has been a public service announcement by the friends of the FBI, CIA, NSA, DIA, SEC, MSM, White House, NIST, and the 9-11 Commission. Because ignorance is strength. My favorite bit is when he um, he says, uh, "If you don't believe the official version, you're a kook and a conspiracy." And then he brings up the faces of the people. Don't believe him or him or him or her or him or him. He just brings all these people, Sibel Edmonds and Richard Grove and all these people. And, yeah, great stuff. Yeah, indeed. And uh, yeah, just maybe brief mention to Fahrenheit 9/11. I think we've discussed before. Michael Moore doesn't quite go far enough in 9/11, but I think there was enough in that film to get yes. him thinking. You know. George Bush spending 50% of his first nine months on holiday. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure whether to call it a comedy documentary. It's not, is it? It uses comedy elements throughout, but it juxtaposes so often the comic and the tragic really effectively, doesn't he? Politicians standing in front of the, the camera having their hairstyles done, you know, and what, what do you get straight after that? You get pictures of the 9-11 attacks and people's reactions to it and how their lives are, yeah. are impacted and changed forever at that moment with this sort of haunting music and the, the contrast is just astonishing so you, you know that use of comedy by way of contrast and juxtaposition i think was 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 brilliantly done actually even as you say he didn't go far enough with his critique yeah yeah i just wanted to quote something from towards the end of the film he's very much pointing to the fact that it's the poor who are you know in the situation Absolutely. where they're signing up to Absolutely. go and fight the the wars of the rich and he makes that point really strikingly and he narrates over various images and he says um, I have always been amazed that the very people forced to live in the worst parts of town go to the worst schools and have it the hardest are always the first to step up and defend that very system they serve so that we don't have to they offer to give up their lives so that we can be free it is remarkable their gift to us and all they ask for in return is that we never send them into harm's way unless it's absolutely necessary will they ever trust us again Wow. You know, really stirring stuff, and uh, it is. Yeah, I mean, I think I think he's a good guy, mm. Michael Moore, and his films are well worth watching. As we said, maybe doesn't quite go too far, and no. he is fully in the mainstream. But yeah, well worth watching. Yeah, I mean, uh, this sort of subtext to a lot of the stuff I've been talking about is, you know, it's all very well, you know, yes, minister and everything. It's all very funny, but when you when you're talking about war and people's lives, it takes on a darker tone. And even you know, Sir Humphrey Appleby from Yes Minister. You know, you can laugh at some of the stuff, but he's incredibly blasé. And then you've got even Blackadder as well. Blackadder goes forth, which is another another one that we should at least just mention. Is where you see the general sweeping up 
you know, Stephen Fry plays the mad General Melcher. I think it's him or Field Marshal Haig, played by Jeffrey Palmer, who's sweeping up the soldiers. He's got toy soldiers and he's sweeping them up. They're just dispensable. You know, that's what it is. I mean, these generals and everything. Uh, so all this comedy, it gets dark when you're talking about war because I, I don't think people quite realise what war is like. And I mean, I've never been in a war, but I've done extensive reading and it's one of my obsessions, really. I'm trying to find out precisely why it happens, you know. Is it human nature? Is it just money? Is it just power? It's obviously a mixture of those things, but I don't think people quite realise, you know, because we've just been, we've just grown up with it. It's a permanent thing. Well, this this is the point that Graham McQueen makes, that it's become mm. a machine, and mm. we somehow got to break that machine. <laughs> you know, we've got to sort of slow down the parts of it in some way. This is why, because he's a, you know, an academic in peace studies. So, you know, he was saying that you, we can't just look yeah. at just the reason, why did this war start, or why did that war start? It's, it's more, yeah. these wars are going to start because the machine insists that they should. Yeah, and I mean, uh, again, Dr. Stranger, I'm sure, I'm sure he's making a nod to that. I mean, it's, and of course it's a business, I mean, Anyone who doesn't think war is at least, to some extent, a business is, is incredibly naive, you know, and hasn't thought about it at all. Well, I think the doomsday machine itself is a kind of metaphor for the whole machine of the military-industrial complex, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Apart from being an actual reference to something that was, was suggested as a possible idea. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Stanley Kubrick was fully aware of what was going on. I don't think it, there was anything naive about him. Very quickly, if you don't mind. One more thing. This is Columbo. And one more thing. Oh, wow. Just a quick mention of uh, Russell Brand, just because just cause it's current. Okay. Yeah, he's sort of, uh, in the last couple of years, he's sort of manoeuvred himself into a position where he's he's a voice in the mainstream. Um, yeah. He's done stuff with David Icke. He's been on Alex Jones. He's been on The Young Turks. He's been on Max Kaiser's show. So he, he is an alternative voice. But right. the problem he's got is that He's still going on sort of silly panel shows and everything. And I actually sent him an email, which he probably hasn't read. <laughs> he probably gets a lot of email saying, you know, why don't you, it's just an idea, why don't you gradually phase out all that stuff and go full time on something meaningful, you know. And he's doing it through comedy. I mean, when he was at the uh, GQ Awards, he received an award and he said, uh, oh, this is really funny because, you know, Hugo Boss made uh, uniforms for the Nazis. You know, and it's interesting that he's dropping that in. You know, and everyone laughed, and we don't know whether they were laughing because they thought he was joking or laughing because they realised it was true, you know. He's doing an all right job, but what I'd like to see him do is phase out the silly stuff and commit himself a bit more, you know. But presumably he's probably got film contracts and everything, so I know you can't just drop it all instantly. Yeah, I see what you mean, but, uh, you know, you said that he's manoeuvred himself, but I can't help but think that he's being manoeuvred as well because he's not a threat. He's not a threat, Possibly. is he? I mean, how come he gets that access yeah. to, say, go on, you know, go on Newsnight and talk to Paxman? And yeah. I think that, you know, listening to that particularly, he came over as... Okay, sort of subversive in the you know in the way we've been talking, but through the lens of yeah. the left wing, through the lens of, of Marxism, and I think a lot of people would see him in in that's that true. light, and and that therefore means he's he's fitting into the left right paradigm, and so therefore that's no problem for the mainstream. People are going to understand him in that way, and in a sense that kind of neutralizes a lot of what he says. I think. But is there any chance that he could, um, if he made, let's say today, he made a decision? I'm going to break out of that. What do you think would happen to him? Uh, would he just be discredited? Would something more sinister happen to him? You know, who knows? I'm mean, just thinking. A lot of people yeah. would say, "Well, we saw him on Paxman, and he's he's a Marxist." <laughs> well, that's yeah. Um, I reject that. 
Yeah. But, but is he at heart? I, I don't know. Maybe he is genuinely wants to find a new way with things. But, you know, I, I think the, the mainstream have very cleverly boxed him in on that one. I, I think you're right. I mean, I think he probably is controlled to an extent. But I don't know. I mean, I've never met him. But it's possible that there might be something in mm. him that is a genuine truther, you know. So I guess time will tell if he can break out. But I think definitely as long as he's as he's talking mm. about socialism, if he's part of the left-right paradigm, then he's he's useless. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Time will tell. Yeah. I suppose we really need to get to a point where we sort of make some kind of conclusions yes. from this. And I suppose I really wanted to say that I think, as I've said a number of times, that I think you know, comedy is a is a really valuable and powerful tool. It helps to reveal hidden truths, you know, external ones and internal ones that we've been discussing, because it could yeah. reveal absurd inconsistencies, hypocrisy, lies. It can do that very powerfully, and therefore. You know, I think at its best, it's an art that shouldn't really be pinned down by rules. Because as soon as you have rules <laughs> for something like yeah. that, then there are things you can't say or ways in which you you can't articulate truths. So that's why I mentioned people like Milligan and Kaufman. I think we're breaking the rules there. But nevertheless, I think there is a danger with it because comedy also flatters. It engages, but it can also flatter. And in the the wrong sort of social context if somebody's controlling that social context then it can flatter you to believe things that are false and we have discussed this so i i'm saying i think it's a rough tool we have to be careful of it and use it judiciously but it's powerful nonetheless very powerful yeah i mean what you're saying i think i was saying to you off mic was uh, that could apply to other art forms you know if you if you make a very powerful film about vietnam but you portray the Vietnam War in a way which is not accurate, then it's dangerous. And I think the thing with comedy, it it has a certain power, it has a certain uniqueness. So that thing of using art for good or bad is slightly heightened with with comedy. And you're right, it's very powerful. Very powerful. Yeah, I'm glad that we talked about it. Um, Yeah, it's been fantastic. Thanks a lot. Really interesting. And of course, we've been sharing our particular enthusiasms, but, you know, why not? Mm. Um, So obviously, there are loads of other things that we could have talked about, but they just don't happen to be the things that inspire us. And so we're two people who are speaking about the things that inspire us that coincide with the subject matter we've been talking about. And uh, it's been great. And I I sincerely hope that other people (laughs) enjoy what we've been talking about as well. Do you want to just uh, remind people about how they can find your blog so that, you know, if you put something else up, um, they can read it? Yeah, my blog is uh, controvert.blogspot.com. And um, what it's all really boiling down to, and I mean, even the conclusion to this conversation is we're saying comedy is potentially dangerous in the hands of people that don't think. So essentially, we're just saying think for yourself. I mean, that's that's what my blog basically comes down to. It's called Freethinker 75. I didn't realize at the time that Freethinker is also a religious movement of atheists. And, and I'm, I'm nothing to do with that. It's just think for yourself. It's the same mantra. Everything comes down to the same thing. Um, if you don't mind, I'm just going to quickly yeah. plug. I've also got a YouTube channel, which is called, uh, surprise, surprise, Contrafib. Contrafib actually comes from uh, a made-up word called contrafibularities, which is on a series called Black Adder. It's a famous um, episode with a dictionary, which is, a, again, it's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Yes, yes um, my YouTube channel has got actually music as well, because I'm a, a musician, and I've got about uh, 30 or 40 self-produced, very lo-fi sort of songs. I use a pseudonym called Eden Roberts, and I've done a few songs with an Indian singer called Anne Wesher. I've done a couple of interviews with David Shaler, XMI5. He's got some very controversial views, but I would say to people, just listen to him. And he, again, he's got some pretty good insights. And I've done a few audios of my blog posts. And I'm hoping, uh, I'm just going to say to Julian's audience, I'm hoping to get Julian to do an interview with me for my YouTube channel. <laughs> 
I won't get you to promise that on air. Well, maybe, maybe. I shall continue to consider that. And I will say thank you very much, Eden, for joining us on the show. It was great to speak to you again. No, Eden, Eden disappeared a few years ago. I still use his name. but uh... Uh, not, not under suspicious circumstances, I hope. No, no, no. He didn't disappear. <laughs> No, but okay. um, Julian, thanks a lot. It's been uh, very good, and I hope um, hope your listeners get a lot out of it. It's a pleasure speaking to you again. Thanks for coming on. Okay, no problem. See you. See you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye bye.